Well, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Brock Ashley. I attend Parkland Chapel. I'm from Farmington. And uh, I teach on Wednesday nights in a rotation at Parkland Chapel. And uh, to start off with, I'd like to just lift uh, Mike and Kelly up in prayer before we break into uh, the Word this morning. And I talk about myself just a little bit. Uh, I do want to remember them because I do appreciate this opportunity to speak to you this morning. But this came about because of some illness in their family. So uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you so much for the chance to get to come here and assemble on a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, in July, and uh, we think about our independence and the freedoms that we get here in this country and what that means to us, uh, but we also realize that we are free will bond servants to Jesus, and we thank you for that opportunity. It's a glorious thing that we even get the chance uh, as Gentiles to be able to have that and be able to call, be called sons and daughters of God, so we thank you, and we want to lift up Mike and Kelly with the sickness that they've had and the pneumonia, Lord, uh, I just pray that you would heal their bodies, that you would let them uh, be able to come back restored from this, that they can find goodness in this, uh, this chance to maybe get rested up, that they've uh, possibly been ran down a little bit with all the things they're trying to do. I just pray a special healing on them and on their bodies and their souls and their spirits. So thank you, Father, for all that you do. Bless this uh, teaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, I am actually originally from central Illinois. So my wife and I just two years ago moved to the parkland. And uh, uh, family, I've got my wife here this morning, Angela, 15 years. I've got my mother-in-law, Nancy, who's recovering from hip surgery. So glad to have her here. We've got an eight-year-old daughter, Cameron, who's, it looks like now downstairs. And we've got twin five-year-old boys, Joel and Jarrett. And then the Lord uh, decided to bless us with a little surprise, baby girl, Madeline, who showed up in January of this year. Uh, the, the January part we knew about ahead of time. We kind of, it looked like things were going on there. But uh, very, very blessed as a family uh, to be growing. I, hopefully that growing part will stop just a little bit. I think we've grown about enough. But uh, my friendship with Mike, uh, as he mentioned earlier, really, it started, uh, we met each other in Parkland Chapel, I think the Wednesday after I had my testimony. Uh, he actually came up and introduced himself, and we were able to actually meet then. But our, truly, our friendship really developed this past March as we were able to go to Israel together. And, uh, you know, you spend 12 days with another human being. And what I learned about uh, Israel is this, that the, the rooms, whether it's a double occupancy or a single occupancy, are actually the same room. It just depends on whether they take the two, double or the two twin beds and shove them together or if they spread them apart by a little bit. And they only give you about... That much space. That's a double occupancy room. So uh, two things happen if you spend that much time together, six inches apart. You either grow to really love and care about the person you're sleeping next to, or you want to punch them in the face. So uh, fortunately for me, and uh, that I was blessed with the opportunity to be uh, next to Mike, and we were able to grow, and our friendship was uh, during that time period. And, and through that, I learned just how much he cares and loves about you guys. So uh, it, it's a beautiful thing to see how much he cares about A.V. Chapel, and, uh, and the other thing I learned about him is that Mike, and we need to pray for Kelly with this, Mike snores. I've compared this to a bear cub operating a chainsaw. I did not bring earplugs. I didn't think about that. He brought some, but I, I didn't think they were comfortable enough to sleep in, but I've never heard anything like it. About the time you'd think he started to slow down a little bit, and I'm praying, I'm like, Lord, is he in that REM sleep? Is he getting close to that? He was just getting warmed up. 
I mean, it was like, ring, 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 ring. So uh, I didn't know at certain points if I was actually sleeping or if I was at a Jackal concert. You know, it was like the Lumberjack was up. So if you don't know Jackal, don't Google that. That's not worth actually listening to any of that music. But uh, anyway, now that I'm not going to be invited back to AV Chapel anymore, let's dig into the fourth chapter of Colossians as we finish off the book. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to be covering verses 2 through 18 this morning. And as we make our way that direction, we're actually going to uh, recap just a little bit where you guys were last week. Uh, Paul was really addressing this idea of taking the sinful man, the sinful garments, and putting them away and putting on the new garments. And a lot of that was what you talked about last week. And several examples then, once we've put off the sinful man and put on the new man, was this idea of servanthood that comes about. So uh, he gave the examples of wives serving their husbands, of kids obeying their parents. And all that was really to drive home this theme uh, that we are all servants to Jesus Christ. We are free will bond servants to our Lord and Savior. So he's really trying to drive that home. And now as he wraps up uh, his epistle, we're going to look at verses 2 through 4 to start off this morning. And in verse 2, he says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So the very first thing Paul asked for, and keep in mind, he's in prison, as he reminds us, is he asked for prayer. So I think that's something that's important for us to remember as we look at our ministers and the people that are leading our churches is it's important for us to continue to lift them up in prayer. They are always under battles. While they spend a lot of time pastoring and shepherding us, and they've got a smile on their face, there's a lot that goes on. You know, this week with them, they've, they've had the physical side of things, but there's the emotional, there's the spiritual attacks that go on, and we need to remember to continually, as we go through our morning checklist of who we're praying for and what's going on, we need to remember to lift our ministers up in prayer. And what I want to also point out that's interesting is that Paul does ask for prayer, is what he asked for prayer for. He says that a door, that, uh, that God would open a door for us for the, for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. So he's asking for a door to actually be opened for them to be able to teach while he's in prison. I mean, what a circumstance, right? I mean, look at where he's at, and yet his prayer is, Lord, maybe I can open a, you can open a door for me to be able to talk to these people about Jesus. And I think about that, and that's very convicting. Because a lot of times, I'm in a circumstance or in a situation, and my prayer is, Lord, get me out of this. I want to get as far away from this thing as I possibly can. But here's Paul in prison. I can't imagine a whole lot worse circumstances. And his request is, please pray for me so that you can open a door that I can share Jesus with these folks. So, uh, you know, I'm in a, uh, in a business in the construction field where I'm surrounded by a lot of hard-hearted people. And I look at that, and I think, man, Lord, there's just no way... You can do a work here, you know, but I look at the other businesses I've been in, and I've either been in construction or uh, maybe it was as a kid in the oil field, there's hard-hearted people, or I've been in factories and there's hard-hearted people, and what I came up with this weekend is there's just a lot of hard-hearted people. I mean, that's the reality of it, is regardless of where we're at or what spot we're put in, there's a lot of hardness, and we need to pray that the Lord would open a door that we'd be able to share the love of Jesus Christ. So, uh, moving on, 
we look at these next couple verses, verses 5 and 6 are really the keys that I want to spend a lot of time on this morning. And what Paul does here is he's going to address both how the church of the Colossians needs to deal with the outside world and also what, how they need to uh, deal with and address each other too. So in verse 5, we see walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. Well, that's an interesting uh, verse right there, but Paul's first command to them is walk in wisdom. Well, what does that mean, to walk in wisdom? And so uh, first I'd like to turn back to James in chapter 3, verse 17, and look at what godly wisdom, how that's actually defined. Because we see some of these words, and oh yeah, walk in wisdom, that sounds great. How do you apply that? How does that work? So first of all, in James chapter 3, verse 17, what he says is, but wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So James has laid out for us what godly wisdom looks like. But the very first thing that I want to point out is it is first pure. And what it means literally there, it is free from defilement. And we know that back when Adam and Eve uh, first had their fall, that everything was defiled. Not just themselves, but also the earth, the plants, everything that we see has been defiled, which means that godly wisdom cannot come from this earth. We cannot have Mother Nature. We cannot have Confucius say there is no wisdom that is found on this earth that is truly pure, that is godly wisdom, that is free from defilement. So that means we need to seek the Father in order to be able to have all these other things that follow when we look at godly wisdom. The next thing is, okay, that's what the definition of godly wisdom. Where do we get it? How does it come about? And if you would turn with me back to Proverbs chapter 9 and look at verse 10, what we're going to see is Solomon actually defines or actually gives us how we need to uh, pursue wisdom. So in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, what Solomon says is, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's a pretty profound verse, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Then in order for us to actually obtain this thing, this godly wisdom, we have to have a fear of the Lord. Now, we're taught a lot of times that fear is a negative thing, that a fear is a lack of faith. But fear in this case not only means fear, and we understand God and his sovereignty and his power, but we also begin to respect and have reverence for it. And really what I want to talk to you about is there's four steps um, <clears throat> that I thought of whenever we're, we're talking about this fear. And the first is to acknowledge, to acknowledge God and who he is, his power. The second one is to then accept that. The third, to apply it to our lives. And then the fourth thing that comes out of all this is adoration. So we've got acknowledgement, acceptance, application, and then adoration comes about. And growing up as in the Southern Baptist Church, anytime I could come up with four A's that all seem to make sense, and actually I am so proud of myself right now. So I don't know that any of you appreciate it, but I'm new at this. I came up with four A's that actually made sense. So if you could do that and then get people to the Pizza Hut by noon, you are a success in the Southern Baptist Church. So there we go. <clears throat> but first of all, this acknowledgement. Um, I want to use this as an example, and this is something that's going to hit close to home for the Mingis, but our respiratory system is pretty amazing, right? So we breathe in, and we take in oxygen along with other gases. And that oxygen is then distributed to the cells on a cellular level through our bloodstream, 
and it's exchanged, oxygen gets exchanged for carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide is then carried back to our lungs where it is expelled. That is called the gas exchange. That's a beautiful process that we need to live, and it occurs all the time. So sitting up here on Mike Mingy's stool, if I decide that I'm going to stop the gas exchange process in my body, I've decided that I am now powerful enough to stop this process. I'm going to, in my deepest Ken Graves voice, stop the gas exchange. If any of you don't know Ken Graves, that'd be a whole lot funnier if you knew who I was talking about. But uh, I'm going to hold my breath. So as I hold my breath, and you see me up here with all my power and all my might, you probably see my face turn a couple shades of red, maybe a blue, and eventually I'm going to fall off the Mike Mingy stool, lay here on the ground, where the gas exchange process will promptly pick back up. It never stopped. Why is that? Because it's an involuntary process. Most of the processes in our body that are vital to our existence are involuntary, which means they are controlled outside of our being. So even though I made this great declaration of power and might, I don't even have enough power to stop the gas exchange process in my respiratory system. You see, that's where the acknowledgement of God and his sovereignty and what he does comes into place. And there's fear when it comes to that. Because at any point in time, if he wants to stop the gas exchange process, it's over, right? And what Isaiah says, actually what God says through the pen of Isaiah, if we looked at Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5, <clears throat> let God actually speak to this. Isaiah 42, 5 says this, Thus says God the Lord, who created heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. So, God is the one that's actually giving us this breath, this process that goes in and out. Now, you can't just stay stuck, though, in the acknowledgement piece, because if you do, and you only acknowledge God and who he is, but you refuse to accept, that person is probably the most miserable person you're ever going to run across, because they're in a spot where they understand God, I'm just not willing to accept it. So everything they've got going on is miserable, right? That's a, that's a terrible spot to be in. So we need to move beyond this acknowledgement, and we need to move into acceptance, which allows us to then move into application. And for that illustration, <clears throat> I'd like to look at 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if we turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to look at the life of David and what's going on in this exact time period is David has had an extremely successful run. I mean, he is wiping out Philistines, he's taking wives, people are loving him, everything is going good for King David at this point. So he decides he's going to take the ark, which is at the house of Abinadab, I probably butchered the name, but he's going to take the ark and he's going to bring it back to Jerusalem. And he's got a huge party planned out. He's invited 30,000 of his you know, closest friends, that's a pretty good sized party, he's got the band set up. He's got the cart all made with the oxen. It's probably got the cool chrome wheels on the cart, maybe with the spinners on them, you know. If you really want to trick out a cart, that's how you're going to make it. So they're on the way to Jerusalem. It's quite a party. When, all of a sudden, one of the oxen slips, the cart starts to tip, and Uzzah, the priest, reaches out to help catch the Ark of the Covenant. At that point in time, God strikes him down. Now, nothing will stop one of your great big parties. If you decide to have a 4th of July party and God smokes somebody at your 4th of July party, that will shut it down. All right, you've seen parents coming home when the kids have a party and that shuts it down. This shuts it down even faster when God decides to smoke somebody in the middle of one of your parties. 
<clears throat> and what we're really seeing here, and what, what's key to this, it, not only has David been riding high at, at this point in time, but he's feeling like he can do no wrong. This is embarrassing. Not only is it a disaster that one of his priests got smoked, but this is, this is a real hit to your ego. And if you would, look with me at verse 9 of chapter 6, 2 Samuel. David was afraid of the Lord that day. David had some real fear that went through him, as well as all these other emotions. So David became afraid, but he didn't let it keep him there. That's the beautiful thing about David. He made some pretty huge, disastrous mistakes, but he never stayed there. What he did, once we've acknowledged and we've accepted God and his power in our lives, is then it moves us into the word, right? Now, they only had about mm, that much of the Bible at this point in time. They had the Pentateuch to look at. They had the law. So they go back to the law, and some months probably passed, and he had some time to heal and really process things. But in that period of time, uh, King David decides to look at the law, and, and th- we weren't supposed to bring the ark in on a cart with oxen. That's the way the Philistines moved it around, right? The Philistines are a picture of the world. We're doing things the way the world was supposed to do it, not the way God commanded. So he dives into the word, and they decide to bring the Ark of the Covenant back on the shoulders of the Levites, on the poles, bring it back the right way. And this time, the worship service looks very different. Every six paces, they are sacrificing to the Lord. You see, the Lord is now the focal point. This fear that he had has now driven him to the point to where this service looks very different And the Lord is the focal point, and David, instead of having his priestly, or not priestly, his kingly robe and, you know, probably his purple attire and looking all regal, he now is down to his skibbies. He's in his undergarments, and he's dancing. Not dancing to be a show-off, but just dancing out of joy, right? So what started as uh, acceptance, the fear, then became application into my life. This is how I'm going to do this. I'm going to change it up. It then transitioned to adoration. And if you would, <clears throat> turn with me to Psalm 30. And I think we get a picture into David's mental state as we look at this, exactly how he went through this process. That in Psalm 30, verse, starting in verse 5 through verse 12, we see, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Like I said, he'd been going on quite the tear. He was pretty prosperous, and he said, I'm not going to be moved. The Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. But you hid your face, and I was troubled. The New Living Translation actually said, I shuddered. I cried out to you, O Lord, and the Lord... And to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned, from, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me in gladness. And to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. That's a pretty big change in David's life where he went from fear to adoration. And that's really the process we see as we start to understand the fear of the Lord in our life and we move from one place to the next. So that, that's actually one of the most liberating things about an abundant Christian life too. When you realize you don't have any control over the stuff that's going on 
and that God does, and that everything he's putting in your path, whether it's coming down with pneumonia, no matter what it is, when you realize everything he puts in your way, he is doing it to, to clean us up, to purify us, to make us better, to, to really, so we can glorify him through it. So it's a beautiful thing, especially when it doesn't happen to me. When it happens to you, it's a beautiful thing. When it happens to me, it's painful. But the last thing is we look at that fifth verse that I've probably beaten to death. is to redeem the time. So he says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, those who are unbelievers, redeeming the time. Do you know that it is never convenient whenever God puts something in our path for us to do? When it comes to dealing with things or situations or people, it is never a convenience. 99.9% of the time, it is a big pain in the hiney. And I, I think about this and uh, Memorial Day weekend, we had that windstorm. Anybody remember all the wind that came through? Memorial Day weekend, we've got this wind that comes through, and all night long I'm out with the generator, trying to keep the generator going to keep the power of the house, and I'm just tired. Sunday morning rolls around, and I'm sitting there eating breakfast, and the power's finally back on. I'm like, man, we got through that. It feels so good to be through it. And then a thought occurred. I wonder if the church has power. Hmm. And honestly, I'll tell you, here, here was my thought. I can text Mindy Parrott right now, the church secretary, and I could probably find out if the church has power. Or I could sit here and enjoy my morning and have a really great morning because I'm tired. I don't feel like texting her. So the decision is, do I completely jack up my entire Sunday by texting her? Or do I just sit here quietly? I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't know about it. Not my problem. Or do I go ahead and ruin my entire Sunday? And that's, that's really what, what we have when we look at these things. We've got decisions to make. Are we going to go ahead and inconvenience ourselves so we can take care of other people? Or are we going to redeem the time? Are we going to realize that I may not have time for the things I want to do? That show that I like to watch may go away. That book I wanted to read, I may not be able to read it. I might not be able to do all these things I had neatly planned out because we, we pack so much into our day that we leave very little wiggle room for the Lord to do anything. And then when he does try to wiggle us around, it's like, whoa, 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 I don't know if I want to deal with that. I mean, you know, I would have taken something that fit directly in the five minutes I had between getting to Walmart and going to pick up the stuff at the pharmacy. But if it doesn't fit in that five-minute window, Lord, I, I don't think I can handle this. So that's, that's really a decision we have to make as we deal with the outside world is how much are we going to allow ourselves to be inconvenienced so that we take care of the people around us. Because at the end of the day, we are accountable for our time. So in verse 6, I promise the rest of it's not going to take quite that long. In verse 6, we see, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer one another. So let your, let your speech be with grace. So getting what we don't deserve, right? That's grace. The definition of mercy is not getting what we do deserve, which is hell and death. And the definition of grace is getting what we don't deserve, which is God's love and his outpouring of blessings in our life. So let your speech be with grace with that and season with salt, which is an interesting thing to look at because salt is used for several different things. For one, it's used at this time period for preservation. They didn't have refrigerators, so it's used to preserve things. It's used for flavor. Some of us use it a little too much for flavor. We probably need to cut that back a little bit. It's also used for purification. So what Paul, I think, is trying to convey to them is let your 
your discussions that you have with one another be purified. Let them be cleaned up. You know, watch what you say. Be careful. And if you would, turn with me back to Mark chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, and we'll see what Jesus had to say about this. But in, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, verse 49, what Jesus says is, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if, it, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Have purity in yourself. Have peace with one another is what he's trying to say in this. And where this reference to salt really goes back to, I know everybody loves in the daily Bible reading plan going through Leviticus. So I'm going to take you back there right now. In the second chapter of Leviticus, in verse 13, as we're looking at grain offerings, which is an offering of thanksgiving, in verse 13, in every offering of your grain offering... You shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of your covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer with salt. With all of our offerings that come off of our mouth that go to the Father, they all need to be offered with salt, with purity. So Mike mentioned this last week, and I loved it. You know, anytime we're doing something unto the Lord, we need to remember that, like to be pure with it, to do it with thanksgiving. And I also think it's interesting to look at, because nobody probably really likes all this offering stuff that's in Leviticus, but a grain offering, an offering of thanksgiving, always comes after a burnt offering. And a burnt offering is an offering of atonement or consecration. So you're basically, when they would offer burnt offerings, they'd say, Lord, I'm giving you everything. It's a fully consumed offering. So I'm giving you everything in my life. It's all yours. But then after that, they would give a thanksgiving offering. That would be an offering that they could actually partake in, but that's the offering that needed to be offered with salt. So it needed to be purified. So this thanksgiving that we do after consecration, if you've ever heard anybody say this, hey, I'd love to get to church. I just need to get some stuff cleaned up in my life. I got some things I'm working on, and then I'll go get right with Jesus. Really, it doesn't actually work that way. If you look at it, even... Even scripturally, even in the Levitical laws in the very beginning, you did not offer a thanks offering before you consecrated yourself. You did not offer thanks until you'd made atonement for your sins. So the way this actually works is, I'm going to give myself completely to you, and then you're going to help me with this thanks offering, Lord. You're going to come down through the precious blood of my atonement offering. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you're actually going to work in and do a work through me and help me purify this thanksgiving and praise. So anyway, just a little sidebar to talk about all these, you know, uh, whatever all this is in Leviticus. If you want to talk later about uh, pimples and whether or not you have leprosy, I'll be here for uh, another 30 minutes or so. So anyway, but the other thing as we're looking at this, this uh, last piece of the verse in Colossians, I mentioned a few minutes ago that these two verses really deal with the outside and also the inside of the church. It deals with unbelievers as well as believers. So what it says is here that you ought to know how to answer each other. So season, have your, let your speech be seasoned with salt that you may know how to deal with each other. What that's referring to is how we talk in our church settings. Do you realize that the number one way a church falls apart is right here? It's through our conversations we have. When they haven't been purified, when they've not been ran through that purifying process, 
that's where stuff starts to fall apart, where, where we say, hey, boy, did you see what so-and-so did? Boy, can you believe those kids running around? What was, what was going on with that? Like, th- those conversations are the ones that we need, to, we need to think that through. We need to let, that, let those thoughts be captured in our minds and actually take that captive and then purify that before we let that exit our mouth. The other one that that's probably referring to, the one that's the most humbling and convicting for me, and I can say this because she's standing outside, is that we need to watch how we speak to our spouse and the people that are in our own camp, too. That's the one where I slip up the most. I mean, I can, I can speak with grace and love and season with salt all I want in here. When it comes, you know, crunch time and it's late at night or early in the morning, I can throw off her whole day just by not watching what I say, not purifying those words before I let them fly out of my mouth. And if you've ever heard somebody say, well, I, I just let whatever comes to my mind, I speak the truth. I, I'm one of those who just doesn't, I don't hold anything back. Well, people that don't hold anything back, frankly, they hurt other people. Now, what's funny, too, is they also don't like it when you don't hold anything back. It usually is a one-way street with that, with that person. Is I don't want to hold anything back, but you better hold stuff back from me. When in reality, what we need to do is take each of our thoughts captive, and we need to purify those things before we let them exit. So, anyway. Uh, moving on to the next few verses, we're going to look at uh, verse 7 through 15, the fourth chapter of Colossians. There's going to be a bunch of names, and I promise you I will probably butcher each one of these. Uh, Tychus, a beloved brother, faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you. And those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nyphus and the church that is in his house. Whew, there we go. I got through most of them. I, wanted, I don't want to go through each one of the names, but I do want to pull out a few that I think are interesting. The first one is Tychus, right off the bat. Now, this is a gentleman that had to actually deliver the letter to the people in Coloss. So he actually brought the letter. Do you realize that God gives us messages sometimes to deliver to other people? And if we don't deliver that message, we may miss out on a tremendous blessing. Look at uh, what was said of Tychus. And I hope someday my prayer would be that this could be said of me, that uh, he was a faithful and beloved brother. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. Let him comfort your hearts. So, I mean, to be a faithful minister and a fellow servant of the Lord, that's just a beautiful thing. I, I just like that, that here's the guy delivering the message. Some of it may be hard to hear, but that he had the boldness to do it and that he's considered to be a faithful brother. And the next one is Onesimus. He, this is an interesting character. Onesimus was actually the slave to Philemon, and he ran off. He escaped Philemon. But in that process of running off and escaping from his owner, 
he somehow got together with the Apostle Paul and received salvation. He actually was saved. And Paul, what did he do? He took Onesimus and sent him right back to Philemon with a letter in his hand that said, hey, this guy that snuck off from you, forgive him. Now, the faith that Onesimus must have had to go back to Philemon, who could have had him put to death, could have had him thrown in jail, could have returned him to slavery, to take this letter that the Apostle Paul had given him and bring it back to Philemon and say, here you go, really sorry about that whole running off on and you leaving you high and dry thing. I mean, that's, that's a difficult situation to navigate, and that's a tremendous amount of faith. And it also tells me that sometimes when we are converted to Christianity, there are going to be people that we have to take a message to that we've probably hurt or we've probably had uh, situations that maybe we didn't have our proudest moments around. Like There are folks that we've probably looked like a complete fool in front of that we are now going to have to go and we're going to have to deliver the message of God to them. So that's just a, a picture of that. But it also shows the forgiveness aspect that ties in with this next guy. And the last one that we'll pull out this morning is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas there in verse 10. That is the same Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's also the same Mark that in the book of Acts, if you look at it, that Paul and Barnabas had gone through their first missionary journey. And they were making plans to go on their second missionary journey. But during the first one, Mark in Pamphylia, had bailed on him. He had decided, this thing is way too hard for me. I didn't know there was going to be sickness and bad stuff, people getting stoned. I'm not going to hang around for this. So he bails. He's done. And on the second uh, time around, as Paul and Barnabas are trying to make their plans, uh, Barnabas brings up, and we can go back to that section in Acts. It's Acts 15 is where you find this at. I'll just go ahead and read it. In Acts 15 and verse 36, we see, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. The contention became so sharp that they parted from one another and Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So here's Mark, who it basically is a modern, or a, a, the first Yoko Ono we ever saw. He broke up the band. I mean, Paul and Barnabas are the greatest Christian rock band ever. I mean, they made this tour. They were, you know, people were getting saved. And Mark's the guy that broke up the band. But we see uh, Paul is very angry about this, but all the way back in Colossians, though, later in his life, as he's talking to Philemon, and he sends a letter to him to forgive Onesimus, Paul is quick to also make sure he forgives Mark as well. You see, uh, in this 10th verse, he says, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome him if he comes to you. So it's full circle for Paul, right? He, he maybe had some issues early on. He wasn't perfect. But listen, this guy, he and I had some problems. He's one of us now. Forgive him. So I, I like that that kind of brings that whole thing full circle for us. And then to close, these last few verses in verse 16. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea and say to uh, Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. <clears throat> and what I'd like to leave you with is in verse 17. 
to pull this out and highlight it. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. You realize that each of us has a ministry? We may not see it like that. We may not want to view it like that. It may not be sitting up here or helping downstairs with the children or running the sound, but each of us has a ministry that we need to take heed of, that we may fulfill what the Lord has given us to do. It might be our own families. For some of us, it's a pretty big ministry field. It might be friends. It might be work. It might be school. Whatever it happens to be, there is a ministry that we all have that we need to take heed of. We need to take notice is what he's trying to say. Take notice of your ministry that you may fulfill it. So, you know, time is precious for each of us. We're all accountable to it. We need to be introspective. We need to be thinking this through and, and trying to view our ministry and try to decide how it is we can use our time as wisely as we can so that we can fulfill the purpose that God has for us. So, uh, speaking of that, if there's anybody here who hasn't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're stuck in that spot where you're somewhere in acknowledgement of who he is but not acceptance, let me encourage you today that now is the time, that time is fleeting, that, that there's no better day to move from acknowledgement to acceptance than right now. So, and it doesn't take a whole big ordeal. You don't have to invite 30,000 of your friends to do it. You know, this is a two-person affair. It's you and it's the Lord. It can be done right where you're at. So if you'd like to pray about that afterwards, I'm happy to stay up here and talk about it. But the important thing is that we put our old garments away, that we put on the new, and that we can move on to that precious and glorious adoration. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again so much for your word. Thank you for the truth that is in here. Some of these things that we read and we learn about and, and we, uh, we let them soak in, Father, they're, they're tough. They're tough to hear. They're tough as we begin to uh, just examine our own lives. But at the same time, uh, I thank you for the promise that there is glorious resurrection that's going to come at the end of this. Father, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have pretty massive fails, but your grace always covers each and every one of them, and I praise you for that. Thank you for the people of A.B. Chapel. I pray you would continue to bless them. I pray, Father, if there's anybody here that wants to take the opportunity to accept you as their Lord and Savior, that they would do it as time is fleeting. And, uh, and we thank you, though, for the time that we have. We thank you for the opportunities you put in our path. I pray that we would have the boldness and the strength to take those and do with them with the ministry as you would see it fit. So thank you, Lord. We love you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.